Going Linux, episode 330, Listener Feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. Whether you are new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you with valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want to send us feedback, our email address is goinglinux at gmail.com and our voicemail line is 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. No bill today because of the holiday. But we have a number of emails, so let's just get right into the feedback. David wrote back to let us know that his hard drive issue was hardware. Hi, going Linux. That way I get around the fight about who I greet first. I wrote too soon before, after about a week of smooth sailing, after reformatting the drive, after reformatting the drive as Bill had suggested. The problem came back. The same disk once again dismounted and disappeared when a write was attempted. But this time, within hours, after a couple of times recovering by powering down and waiting 10 minutes, the disk disappeared permanently. A visit to the store, and after about a half hour and $80, the problem was solved. A new and stronger power supply for my desktop did the trick. The disk reappeared, and all the data was there. I've waited a week and a half to write you this time, and all is still well. Although I had suspected the power supply, about five years old, I thought, incorrectly, that it would have affected all my disks and not only one specific one, and so was not the problem. The hardware tech explained and demonstrated to me that each feed from the power supply is different and can vary in voltage. Furthermore, I had noted that my backing up to my USB-attached hard drives was getting difficult, and with the new power supply, this too was solved. A long learning experience. It introduced me to Linux emergency mode, something I have never seen before, and of course it gave me the joy, honor, and educational value of corresponding with you. While I have you on the line, and after having buttered you up with a compliment, a new topic to raise with what appears to be an old Linux bug, the speed of copying. This is more evident copying large files, that is, about one gigabyte, to USB-attached devices, but also at times from hard disk to hard disk. I was reminded of the problem doing extra backing up of my two other hard drives prior to taking my computer to the shop, and afterwards doing a fresh backup of my previously problematic drive. Looking at various entries when you search for Linux copy slow, you run into a rat's nest of problems and links to reported bugs going back to 2010, including one explanation that there is a long-standing intrinsic-to-the-kernel design problem with how copy uses its cache and causes large copies to slow terribly and almost hang. 
There is a lot of smoke and red herrings surrounding this problem, as slow copying may have other causes, such as not enough RAM, swap area, or swappiness. In my case, with 8GB of RAM and a swap area that's almost never used, this is a non-issue. In fact, I checked using System Monitor during slow copy operations, and the RAM usage was low, and swap barely touched. CPU also was okay. Another compounding issue around the bug is whether the reporter uses a USB hub or USB 2 rather than 3. However, although USB 2, I do not use a hub, and as mentioned, I have non-scientifically noticed the problem when going from SSD to SSD, although the copy is of course faster than via USB. Its slowdown is noticeable when copying multiple large files. Are you aware of this problem, and can you comment on it? If you have time, perhaps you might wish to enter the rat's nest of forum discussion and bug entries, although I warn you it may affect your patience and sanity. As always, much appreciated. Your hard work putting on the podcast and also the -the behind-the-scenes time and effort being there for people like me is something I know you do altruistically and shows both of your excellent personal characters. Bestest, David, expat, Canadian, in Israel, etc., etc., well, David, um, yeah, glad to hear that you got your disappearing hard drive trick fixed. Um, the issue around slow copy, uh, I have, quite frankly, I had forgotten that that was an issue. Any copying I do is usually a large number of files, and I set it up usually with rsync or something like that and just let it run and then go do something else and come back because I know it's going to take a while. Of course, using USB 3 rather than USB 2 is going to be faster and the more RAM you have, the better. If your version of Linux is using the swap file, it's going to be faster with that and SSDs will make it faster. I haven't specifically noticed a problem with larger files. And again, maybe that's just because of the way that I do my copying when I copy things, uh, and I guess I have more patience than the average person. But uh, yeah, I I would suspect that if this is indeed a problem with Linux uh, and the way that it uses maybe the swap or RAM to do the copying, the cache itself, uh, then bringing this issue to people's attention, especially developers and Linux kernel developers, in the form of a bug report, might continue to bring attention to it. But if it's gone back as far as 2010, it may be something, quite frankly, that people are living with, because although it's slow, it's not really causing significant issues for most people, or at least the people who it's causing significant issues for aren't speaking up. So, Without having dug into it, uh, again, I would just uh, file bug reports and make your issue known and see if there are other people with the same issue. So that's my recommendation there. And I think I'm going to pass on digging into it further. I might if I have some spare time, but, you know, if it's going to try my patience, maybe I'm not going to do that. Anyway, that's just me. Thanks, David. Greg wrote us about really, really old computers. 
I just listened to Going Linux Podcast 297 about using Linux on old computers, which prompted this email. I admit to being a computer hoarder. I still have the first PC I assembled in 1992 using an 8486DX2-66 processor. Hey, Greg, I remember those. With a push button on the front panel to switch between the normal 16 megahertz and the turbo 66 megahertz clock speeds. Yes, megahertz. No, I don't use it. I think it has Windows 3.1 on it. Heck, I still have my 1979 vintage Ohio Scientific Challenger 1P single board computer with a Mostec 6502 processor running at 1 megahertz and a whopping expanded 8K of RAM with a cassette player for storage at 300 baud. I enjoy tinkering with old cast-offs and seeing what flavor of Linux I can run on them. So I have some ancient ones. It seems like limitations on the maximum RAM that can be installed is the limiting factor. My most frustrating machine has an old Cyrix processor. I don't know how slow. And a 32 megabyte maximum RAM limit. It also has a non-standard 2 gigabyte hard drive that I can't swap out. It runs Windows 98 just fine, and it grinds me that I can't seem to get a Linux distro that will run on it, except maybe Tiny Core Linux. What can I do with this old thing? Make a router, firewall, DHCP server out of it, a printer server? Hmm. I have several others that are in the category of 300 megahertz Intel and AMD single core processors, some of them non-PAE capable. I have been successful in using Crunchbang, now Bunsen Labs Linux, on them. They work well for email, still images, and barely streaming audio, but don't have the horsepower to handle video since they have no graphics processor. Computers of the Pentium 4 and AMD XP single-core processor vintage, 1 to 2 gigahertz, seem to work well for things like Ubuntu server and, interestingly, as a Mythbuntu MythTV tuner backend, where VGA video is good enough. If you're going to run multiple processes at once, you're going into the multi-core processor category, and full-screen video just about requires a video card with a graphic processor on it. The, quote, new old computers. Just to make things interesting, most of my machines that are on much of the day, like the 1.5 MHz Pentium 4 Ubuntu server machine, run B-O-I-N-C, Boink, Berkeley Open Internet Computing in the background, when they're not busy with their primary tasks. Although the podcast focuses on exciting new Linux users with the speed, beauty, and versatility of modern Linux, I can't help but think there are tinkerers like me that would like to know more about what to do with old, old, really old, dare I say, antique machines. Best regards, 73Bill, Greg, W8FJK. Thanks, Greg. And yeah, lots of good memories there with some of those machines you have. And I'm surprised they're still there and still ticking. Well, I'm not surprised they're still there, but that they're operating and functional. And wow, it'd be nice to be able to get them up and running with something on them. Um, You might try the Neverware uh, software, which is something that 
gives you the ability to run them as a Chromebook. So it's got a, uh, I don't think it's an emulation of Chrome software, maybe a, a rewrite of uh, the Chrome operating system. Um, but it, it works on non-Chrome designed machines and has minimal RAM requirements. You might want to try that. I don't think it's going to handle the really, really, really old ones that you have, though. Maybe a version of BSD, like the BOINC that you are using, or something like that, although you've probably tried that as well. Another alternative you could use, if you can get these things to boot off of something other than the hard drive or the floppy disk drive, as the case may be, um, is to try uh, booting um, not a live version of a of a Linux distribution, but rather try the live environment to boot something like a network attached storage software or something like that. Set it up essentially as you suggested, maybe as a, a network server or uh, something like that. Although some of those may still be a little bit on the light end of the specs to be able to even handle that. So, you know, Greg, there comes a point when old hardware, even though it's still functional, and even though we have things like BSD and Linux and even the Chrome operating system to run on these lighter machines, sometimes you have to kind of say, it's time to retire this and maybe put it on a shelf in a vacuum-packed case or something like that, donate it to a museum. I don't know. Um, Set up a museum in your house for old machines? Not sure. Anyhow, uh, good luck, and let us know if you have any unique experiences with some of those really old machines that perhaps might be of interest to our listeners. Thanks, Greg. Roger has a simple ask about a Telegram group. Hi guys, just wanted to say, love the podcast. Do you use Telegram and do you have a link to the group? If so, thanks for all the hard work, Roger. Well, Roger, uh, no, we don't use Telegram. Um, we have just started using Discord for our communication to replace Skype uh, for Bill and me when we are recording these sessions, although we haven't had a lot of experience with that. Um Anyway, let's see. But no, the answer is we don't have a Telegram group because we don't use Telegram. But if we do decide to in the future, we'll let you know. Kevin would like some advice on maintenance. Hello, I'm running Linux Mint 17.3 and have been using Linux Mint full-time since May 2017. What would be the best advice for best practice maintenance for a computer running Linux Mint? Would this be the same for other distros as well? I've come from the Windows way of doing things, and I'm aware things are different in Linux. This might make for interesting topic for your show. What are your thoughts? Kevin in Brookfield, Connecticut. Well, thanks, Kevin. Uh, some of the things that you have to do to maintain Windows simply don't have to be done in Linux, like defragmenting your hard drive and running an antivirus software, um, checking for malware, although, you know, you can certainly do all of those things. You really don't have to with Linux. 
for maintenance, really the only thing you should do with Linux is similar sorts of things that you do with Windows to back it up on a regular basis. Make sure that you are running the latest patched version, which on Linux is very, very easy as long as you run the updater on a regular basis. And that's really about it. it Linux just runs. Uh, we did have an article from back October last year on Linux security guidelines, which of course is another form of maintenance if you want to stretch the term. And we'll include a link to that article in the show notes. But there we describe uh, making sure that if you're running a Windows emulator uh, or a Windows in a VM or Wine, uh, make sure that you run antivirus software on that particular partition because it is Windows or emulates Windows. And because it can get the same sort of infections as Windows. Uh, running an antivirus there is, is good practice. Um, enabling a software firewall is another alternative. If it doesn't interfere with your connection to the internet, using strong passwords and making backups regularly, installing software applications from trusted sources, and that includes updates, uh, which all of that is kind of very, very easy on Linux to do because the utilities are all there. Uh, and then use your common sense. Uh, the biggest security threat is generally found between the keyboard and the chair. So make sure that uh, you, uh, being careful, use your common sense there. Uh, and that's from a security perspective. But with uh, Windows, you don't have to do things like running Bitdefender or Malwarebytes or CryptoPrevent or Adblock Plus, although you might want to run ad blockers in your browser. Uh, you don't have a Windows repair tool or a Linux repair tool that is uh, akin to that. Adware Cleaner, Rogue Killer, CC Clean, some of the things that Mike Smith recommends uh, Mike Smith of um, the Mike Tech Show fame, another podcast you might want to listen to if you run Windows, uh, or or a Mac, or are a computer tech, uh, you might want to listen to his, look that up on your favorite podcatching software. But other than that, I really don't think there's much you need to do um, that Linux doesn't already do for you or doesn't do as part of your regular use of Linux, like software updates and application updates and those kinds of things. So Linux, I, I don't want to say it's maintenance-free, but it's more maintenance-free than Windows, that's for sure. So uh, if any of our listeners actually has any recommendations on things you might do to maintain your Linux computer, in particular for Kevin, Linux Mint, uh, write in, give us some thoughts and suggestions. I may be missing something, but there's not an awful lot you have to do, Kevin. Thanks for your email. Ken has some suggestions. Hi, Larry and Bill. I always enjoy the show. If you don't mind, I'd like to suggest a few topics slash reviews that not only I would like to see covered, but hopefully your other listeners too. Maybe some or all of these are in your pipeline. App packages. Not sure if that's the right term. Snappy, flat pack, app image. Specialized Linux distributions like Nopix, Kali, System Rescue CD, Gparted, etc. Some of those we've actually already done, Ken, and you might want to check some of those in the back catalog. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking about System Rescue CD or 
rescue CDs in general and GParted. Um, small business distributions like Neth Server, SME Server, and ClearOS. Linux Image and Recovery like Clonezilla. I know we did an episode on Clonezilla and there's an article in our uh, website on Clonezilla. It's a little old, but perhaps it needs some update. Some of the things may have changed, but I don't think so. Relax and Recover, Mondo Rescue. Those are all good Linux image and recovery software programs. Uh, Linux on other devices like Raspberry Pi, Banana Pi, Nano Pi, etc. Uh, Raspberry Pi distros like Raspbian, Fedora, Diet Pi, and Ubuntu. Running Wine on Linux. Thanks for the great show, and I'm always impatiently waiting for the next episode. Ken, the small box admin. Thanks, Ken. Great suggestions. We may not get all of those done, but I'm going to put them all in our suggestion list as topics to pick from. So again, thanks for the ideas. And if any of our other listeners have ideas like this, please write in, let us know. Sean has a new game review request. Zonotic, X-O-N-O-T-I-C. Salutations, Bill and Larry. Bill, would you be willing to review the Floss FPS called Zonotic on the Going Linux podcast. It's a free first-person shooter based on the Quake 3 Arena source code. Thanks. Well, I'll leave that one to Bill and see if he has any interest in doing that. I am not a gamer. I have not heard of Zonotic, but I do like first-person shooters. So as long as you know it doesn't require a subscription to Steam, which I'm not going to do because... I wouldn't get the value out of it. If it's a standalone Linux supported game, maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll install it, give it a try. But Bill's really the one to give the review on it for sure. Tom commented on the podcast. Hello from Berlin, Germany. I came across your podcast on TuneIn. Glad I found it. I enjoy your show greatly. Now, don't panic but I'm the 74-year-old guy who started out with a desktop and had 20-megabyte hard drive and a 1-megabyte RAM using DRDOS from Digital Research with the command prompt. Oh, don't forget, we used bulletin boards those days. I have two laptops with Windows 10, one in German to help my friends and one in English to help relatives stateside. In my long-winded way, I just wanted to say that I have a third Sony Vio, 10 years old, that I have installed Ubuntu at one time Mint. I just couldn't dispose of this 10-year-old laptop, and that is why I decided to try a version of Linux. I am pleasantly surprised. Thank you for explaining Linux in plain English so that we Linux beginners can learn. All the best, Tom W. Berlin. Germany. Well, Tom, thanks. And I am really glad that we have been able to help you to learn Linux, adopt it, and put it on that 10-year-old laptop. As you just heard, we are very happy that Linux still supports a lot of really old hardware. And although I have not ever really owned a Sony Vio, I have used one in the past, and they were an interesting little, and I mean physically little, laptop type computer and i owned one of similar size and similar vintage never tried putting 
Linux on it don't have it anymore, so I can't even do that. But it's interesting to know that the uh, VIO from 10 years ago can have Ubuntu or Linux Mint installed and that it works fine. So that's that's good news, and thanks for letting us know. Greg writes about secure browsing on his new ThinkPad. Hi, Larry and Bill. I wrote a couple of weeks ago asking about a laptop similar to the ThinkPad T420 that Charles Tendell chose for his company. I did a little digging around for, for new listeners to the podcast. We did an episode some time ago where Charles Tendell, a security expert and podcast host and radio show host, um, talked about using a ThinkPad for T420, which even at that time was a relatively old computer, to replace what was going to be a MacBook Pro, I think it was, for his company. And he decided to get a fleet of T420s as used computers, and they've been working just fine with Linux running on them. Continuing with Greg's email, I did a little digging around and ended up getting a used ThinkPad T420 off of eBay. It's got a Core i5, 128GB SSD, 8GB of RAM, and was loaded with Windows 7 for less than $190. Of course, I immediately loaded it with Ubuntu 16.04. It runs wonderfully. If I didn't know better, I would never think this is a 6-7 to year old computer. With SSD, it boots up in less than 15 seconds. Battery lasts about three hours. Just thought I'd give an update and let you guys know that it does the job I wanted it to. It is not a gaming machine, but I just needed the standard email web browsing office application work. I'd recommend the same thing for anyone looking for a school or work laptop. I've been doing some travel for work, and I take along my T420 running Ubuntu. The other day, I connected to the hotel Wi-Fi and got to thinking that I should be more secure when traveling. Any chance you guys can do a show on how to securely use public Wi-Fi on a Linux laptop? What problems do I need to protect my system from? Thanks, Greg. Well, the main thing, Greg, that you need to remember when using a public Wi-Fi is to use a VPN. Uh, And there are plenty of free VPN software plugins for browsers like Chrome. And I've used a couple of those and they work extremely well. The one that I have installed right now, let me look it up real quick because I don't take this laptop a lot with me. I don't have it enabled on a regular basis. The one that I have used most recently as a plugin for Chrome is something called Zenmate VPN. And I don't know whether it's still active or available. It still shows up in my list. I have it disabled right now because I don't have my laptop obviously uh, on the road with me right now using public Wi-Fi, but that certainly will work. Uh, And I'm sure there are other plugins specifically designed for use with a browser. Um, There are a number of others that you can install as well on Linux, but I think this is probably the best way to secure yourself on a public Wi-Fi as a VPN. And since 
You really need to be secure while browsing the internet. A browser plugin will work just fine. Uh, and then you don't have the overhead of having to run it as uh, an installed application. It just uh, runs as a browser plugin. Um, and being a browser plugin, you have the ability to disable it when you are on your home Wi-Fi or in a trusted Wi-Fi network. So that's the, the key thing that I would recommend. Uh, we had discussed some other VPN software uh, during my time on the air with Computer America. I don't remember specifically which episode it would have been, but you want, might want to check our show notes for episodes between 2008 and 2014 when I was on the Computer America radio show and check for VPN. We did a whole show on that. Uh, it was sponsored for the radio show by a particular company, and so that's the one we talked about specifically. But we also talked about general issues around VPNs and how to connect and what the advantages are. So you might want to check back on that episode, and if I can find the link before posting the show notes, I'll include it in the show notes for this episode as well. I'll link to that particular Computer America episode. And that's it for our email this time. The next time we will continue with our usual user experience episode. Not sure what the topic's going to be quite yet, but until then, you can go to our website at goinglinux.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. If you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux Google Plus community. Until next time, thanks for listening. Music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.